Am I on? Can you all hear me? Ooh, that was lively and joyful. I love it. All right, well, as many of you know, as most of you are probably here for, uh, we are doing child dedications later this morning. And so, woohoo, there you go. Yes, we keep that spirit up, you guys. Okay, this is, is going to be good. All right, uh, and so I figure what better way to open up a sermon the morning of child dedications than by sharing a sweet story about one of our very own Restore Kiddos. So this story occurred a few weeks back. We had this thing called a promotion Sunday, and that's basically just this celebratory Sunday, uh, typically at the beginning of an academic school year where the kids sort of get promoted into their new grade level or new age bracket. And this was going to be our first one, so I really wanted to make it exciting for the kids, had a bunch of stuff planned for it. Uh, And so about two months prior to that Sunday, when I started planning for it, I may have very casually very offhandedly, sort of just mentioned to one of our older kiddos that a surprise was coming. I really didn't think a ton about it. Um, But this kid, I mean, he became obsessed with this surprise. Like for the next two months, anytime he even caught a glimpse of me, like he was darting over like, what is the surprise? Is this a surprise? Can I get a hint of the surprise? What is the surprise coming? And it didn't matter like how much intel I did or did not give him. Like it did not sway this thing from just like ballooning up within the tiny soul of this boy. And I started to get stressed. Because here's the deal. I knew what the surprise was and it wasn't very cool. Okay, you want to know what the surprise was? It was Pokemon stickers. That was it. That was the whole surprise. They were going to get these journals that they were going to get to decorate, and I knew they liked Pokemon, so I got them Pokemon stickers. That was the whole surprise. But I mean, this kid, the way he was obsessing over it, like, I think he really thought a real-life Pokemon was going to be here. And like, I don't know if those things are like animals or beasts or like a hybrid of the two, but I'm pretty sure they're not real. And I'm pretty sure even if they were, I do not have the ability nor the budget to get one here. So I was stressed, but lo and behold, the Sunday comes, we bust the journals out, I give them their stickers, and here's the deal, they had a good time with those stickers, okay? They had a ball trading them, like telling me which ones were the coolest, which ones had the best powers, like we had a good time. Nevertheless, at the end of our time, we're cleaning everything up, and the little boy looks at me and he asks me the most heartbreaking question. Well, where's the surprise? And it's like having to explain a joke, right? Like, if you have to explain the surprise once it's already happened, you know you failed. And I failed. I failed. And more than a story, this is just really a public repentance to everyone about how hard I failed this child as his pastor, and I felt so bad. Um, But no, beyond public repentance, I do promise the story has a point. Uh, Because this morning, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And within this chapter, we are going to see our author make reference to a sort of surprise of his own. He's going to talk about this coming prize, this end-of-the-life reward that he actually talks about quite often throughout the letters that we have of his in our New Testament. He talks often about running the race and running it well, about training and pushing and working to share the gospel, to be the gospel, to become a partaker of the gospel, and all for this point— all for the prize, for what he sometimes calls this crown, that he fully believes awaits him and all other believers that finish their race well. Well, this morning, we're going to begin to understand a little bit more about what that crown really was to him, what that prize awaiting us is all about. And I think much like our friend at Restore Kids, 
it's going to be unlike what we might expect. But hopefully, unlike our friend from Restore Kids, we will be pleasantly surprised, and it will be even better than what we expect. It may even be a real-life Pokemon, or at least Paul's version of that. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us one more time. We're going to read our passage, and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you expectant this morning. We come before you with excitement and with eagerness, God. And we ask that you would meet that excitement. Would you meet that eagerness with just your presence, Lord? Whatever that looks like, whatever that feels like, whatever um, we need it to be in our hearts and our lives this morning, God, would you provide? Would you be near? We pray all these things in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 17 through 20. They'll be on the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along. It says, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed. You are our glory and joy. So our author Paul, he opens up this passage by referring to his audience as brothers and sisters. And I want to spend a significant amount of our time really unpacking the gravity of that, because I think it's going to help us understand the gravity of the words that he has for his audience there at the end. You see, this term for brothers and sisters or siblings that he uses here, he actually uses throughout his writings to the New Testament church 130 times. Now, for a frame of reference, he refers to believers as the church, fewer than 50, and refers to us as the body of Christ, right, this other Christianese term we like to use a lot, only a handful. But he refers to us as brothers and sisters, as siblings, 20 times in this letter alone. And it's not a long letter. Right? So this is clearly Paul's preferred way to refer to believers and their relationship to one another. And that's significant. Not just numerically. But because of what exactly this experience is that he's drawing upon to help his audience understand how they ought to relate to one another. He's drawing upon their experience that they would know at this point of what it means to be a sibling. Now, I don't know about you, but when I envisioned like ancient first century Greco-Roman family units, I kind of envisioned like homeschool families. And my apologies if you were or are homeschooled. I promise this won't be that bad. Um, But you know the families I'm talking about? Like they drive these vans that are really just like a mini bus. Like you didn't even know they made cars with that many rows of seats. But every single row and every single seat is filled with another child. And they just, like, come rolling up, and they just start tunneling out of there like a clown car. I mean, just, like, so many kids, these massive families. That's kind of what I pictured when I envisioned these ancient family units. But that actually couldn't be further from the truth. You see, do the things like abandonment, abortion, contraception. Did you know that there was first century contraception? Don't go Googling that. There's some really weird stuff that comes up. But nonetheless, it was there. And so do these things. By the age of 10, you'd have maybe one to two siblings in your household. Now, by the age of 20, only 50% of those households had a living father. Only 60% 
had a living mother. So when we consider these family units, right, these family units that keep in mind at this time, that is everything. Like, that is all you have. That is the center of your life. It's the center of your wealth, of your social standing, the center of your economic production, your religious tradition, your education. It is all you have. And by the age of 20, you're lucky to have a mom. Coin flip if you still got a dad. But what you do have, most likely, is at least one or two siblings. And it's just y'all against the world. Like, church, can we imagine for a second what those relationships would have been like? Like, can we imagine the type of radical dependence they would have to have on one another? Just the intense and, like, desperate need they would have for each other. Think of how important, like how primary a spirit of unity and harmony would have to be, not just for kicks, not just because it's nice, but like for pure survival. These were the most dependent and life-sustaining relationships this audience could fathom. And those are the relationships that Paul calls to mind when he refers to them, when he speaks of how they ought to see each other. And he's not just talk. He really believes this, right? So much so he, he talks about being separated from them as though it's like being orphaned, like that's intense language there. He's saying to be separated, to be away from fellow believers, it is to be cut off, deprived, removed, from the protection, the help, the intimate love that a family unit would have inherently provided at this time. To be parted from his brothers and sisters, it was to be without the very real and tangible needs that he had that he knew only the family of God could provide for him. And so this intense longing, like this great desire, this exerting every effort to get back to them, it's not just because they're buds. It's not just because they enjoy each other's company. Like, there is a desperate need here for him to be back into their belonging. These are the most dependent, life-sustaining relationships that Paul has. And it's at this point I kind of want to address the reality here, which is that for many of us in this room this morning, those are not the relationships we have had with other believers. In fact, many of us have had experiences quite the opposite. For some of you here this morning, these, this idea of these dependent, like life-sustaining relationships, that seems a little much when your reality has been church after church, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, coming in and out, barely being seen, hardly even being recognized, certainly not being loved or known. For others of you, myself included, you may have at one time thought you had these relationships, at least something close, these sibling-like, brotherly, sisterly relationships that even those ended in betrayal, hurt, and pain. 
like these beautiful, nourishing, life-giving relationships you thought you had turned abusive, manipulative, used against you to cause you harm. And church, if you find yourself anywhere on that scale this morning, to any extreme or anywhere in between, and you carry any frustration, anger, hesitancy, heartache, or hurt in hearing about these relationships, first and foremost, not only are those feelings valid, I think that's the only way to feel. Like, in light of what these relationships are supposed to be, in light of their significance, like in light of how crucial they are to our walk, to our our life with the Lord, to our souls, those relationships are ignored, or they're withheld, or they are in any way fractured or harmed, you should feel pain at that. You should feel frustration at that. We should feel an intense loss in that. Oh, but church, we should also feel hope because of Christ and his restorative grace. We should feel hope for something better. We should hope for something more. And as we finish out Paul's words, I think we're going to have some of that hope restored. He says in verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? For Paul, these are the people he has endured with. They are the people that he has run this race with, the people he has suffered with, he has wept with, he has celebrated with, the people he has helped form and have helped form him, the people he has walked this journey with Jesus with. Like they are so intertwined in his understanding of who the Lord is and what the Lord does. He can't even fathom being in his presence without also considering the presence of his brothers and sisters right alongside him. Like when he thinks about, when he envisions this coming day, this pinnacle, right? Like the final, the finish line to that race that he's running, this glorious day that all of us believers long for, the return of our coming Savior. He talks often of what joy and what glory will will happen during that. But what we see here is that the shape of that glory, the fullness of that joy, will take its form in community. What that glory, what that joy will look like. His brothers and sisters. Church, when our Christ returns and we stand in his presence, free from sin, free from suffering and pain, like taking in the fullness of his goodness and his grace and his love and his mercy, you better believe that that will be a glory and a joy in itself. But let's imagine for a second what it'll be like 
to stand in that presence alongside the very people that first showed you that presence on this side of eternity. What it'll be like to stand before that goodness and that love and that grace among the people that first gave you a taste of that goodness and that love and that grace on this side of heaven. To hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant in earshot of the brothers and sisters that helped you to endure, that toiled with you, that worked with you, that pushed with you, that helped you to finish your race well. Church, that will be our crown. That is our prize. That will be our reward. And so as I close things up up here, uh, parents, if you are about to dedicate a child, this is your time to scurry on out. Go grab them. Scurry back in real quickly. And as they exit, um, I want to share with the rest of us, when I knew that I was going to be preaching through this segment of scripture, specifically the morning of child dedications, I could not be more enthused. Because what I think this passage does is set for us a very necessary foundation a very necessary vision for why child dedications are so significant. Significant not just for the families here, not just for the parents, not just for the children themselves, but significant for our whole church, for our family. Because when we have this vision, when we tune our hearts to understand these types of relationships, that we under, then we understand that this morning, we aren't simply dedicating the Stearman's daughter, the Caselli's little boy, the Swanson's kid, or the Kelly's sweet Gia. No, we are dedicating our children. We are about to hear from our brothers and sisters about the glory and goodness that is their kiddos, about the hopes and desires and, and longings that they have for them, about the commitments and the promises they seek to make for them. And we listen to these things, not as congregants, not as acquaintances, not as friendly faces they see on Sunday morning. We hear these things, we listen to these things as aunts and uncles. ready to take on that responsibility, that obligation, as we are invited into these types of relationships where we can envision a day standing in the presence of our coming king where sweet Maddie and Gia and Felix and Lion, they will not just be the crown of their parents. They will be our glory. They will be our joy. We will look upon their faces knowing we helped encourage them. We helped support them. We helped form them, and maybe even they helped form us. They will be so intertwined into our understanding of who the Lord is, his goodness, and his grace. They will, in fact, be our prize. They will, in fact, be our reward. 
Would that be our heart posture this morning as we dedicate these kids? Now, as they start to find their way back in here, I want to give us some instruction of how exactly this is going to go and how exactly we're going to get to take part um, as a family this morning. Um, so we're going to have the first family come up. As they come up, there's going to be a video playing. Uh, and in this video, we'll get to hear a little bit about their little one, um, as well as the hopes, the desires, the prayers that they have for their little one and any promises or commitments they are making for them this morning. Um, again, we're listening with intentional ears there because at the end of that video, uh, we, me and Justin will be standing up here with that family. And then congregation, we're going to turn to you. All right. And we're going to say, do you affirm? that you have heard these promises, that you've heard these commitments, and you affirm that you will seek to encourage, to support, and to help this family as they seek to provide whatever that is for their kiddo. There's going to be a pause. It's going to be an obvious pause. It's gonna be an awkward pause if you're not ready, okay? So you gotta be ready. In that pause, congregation, you are going to fill that pause with the most boisterous and in unison and excited, like how y'all started this, all like hooped and hollered. Yeah, we're gonna do that, and we're gonna say, we do. Okay, and that is gonna be our family's uh, confirmation that they are joining with us in the dedication of these children. Once we hear that we do, we will pray over the child. They'll head back to their seat. The next family will come up, and we're gonna do it all over again, all right? Okay, cool. I'm a little disappointed that they got back in here so fast because I was ready to do some stand-up material to like vamp, but that's fine. We'll save that for another day. All right. All right. I think we're ready for this dear man's video.